Welcome to CFAS Podcast on Income Investing in the Emerging Markets. I'm Michael Hedstrom, and with me today is Jia Liang Liang, Head of Emerging Markets Debt at Western Asset, an independent affiliate of Lake Mason. In this low-yield environment, many advisors and investors are already looking beyond broad market benchmarks, such as the Barclays Global Aggregate Index or the Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, and the traditional exposures when building fixed-income portfolios. They recognize the need to include a more diverse range of bonds in the portfolios in order to create all-weather investment strategies, especially since our portfolios often tend to have a U.S. home country bias. CL, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your perspective on this area of the market. My pleasure, Michael. The emerging markets are often underrepresented in the international fixed income indices and portfolios, and emerging market bonds still lack the classic appeal of traditional asset classes. Looking at the big picture, why should investors and advisors pay closer attention to this sector? You are right, Michael, that uh, emerging market bonds tend to be underrepresented. Uh, This is true, especially if you measure exposure versus the growing size of these economies. Among many factors, this probably reflects the nascent phase of development in many local EM markets. Now, given that most indices are weighted by market cap, the under-representation of emerging markets is therefore not surprising. Uh, But paradoxically, though, this leads us to the fundamental case for EM investing. Regardless of the recent EM market volatility, if you look over the last 30 years, we have witnessed the rising influence of EM countries on multiple fronts, uh, especially in steering the trajectory of world GDP growth. Now, if you think and pause and think about today's market context, the obsession over the Purchasing Managers Index in China, this is one such evidence of this secular shift. It used to be said that when the U.S. sneezes, EM catches a cold. This is still very true today, but economic causality has become much more two-way rather than unidirectional in the past. So now I, I do acknowledge that economic maturation in EM This is far from complete, but I do think we need to bear in mind today that many developed economies, too, face immense structural challenges, for example, weak demographics as well as fiscal deterioration. And as a result, these economies themselves are not immune to longer-term headwinds. So the point I'm trying to make here is that from a standpoint of global portfolio diversification, we would argue that far from dismissing them, EM bonds deserve closer attention to both investors and advisors alike. And on a related note, after a very strong start of the year, emerging markets have taken a hit since the U.S. election. What's your short and long-term view of the emerging markets fixed income sector? Now, as you pointed out, the earliest strength of EM performance uh, was tempered by weakness following the U.S. election in November. I would characterize the recent sell-off as reflecting a combination of technical and fundamental factors. Technical in the sense that the election outcome likely prompted profit-taking by short-term investors, particularly in the context of an extremely strong showing in the prior 10 months. So timing has a part to play in accentuating short-term outflows. 
fundamentally in the sense that heightened policy uncertainty in the U.S. has exacted a premium on EM yields, particularly in the face of a normalization in U.S. monetary policy. It goes to say that EM as an asset class is not for the faint of heart, neither is it suited for the so-called tourist investor, one whose enthusiasm can quickly evaporate as a result of short-sightedness and unrealistic expectations. And indeed, looking forward into 2017 and beyond, as a firm, Western assets' faith in EM remains steadfast. As I alluded to earlier, the paradigm of fundamental improvement in EM economies is intact. The maturation process, though, is evolutionary. There is therefore a need to differentiate long-term credit stories of what is a highly diverse asset class. After all, this is a universe of more than 70 countries across different time zones where individual merit can vary considerably given the unique initial conditions of each country. And this heterogeneity of the asset class, we think, is a feature and not a flaw because it presents a dynamic set of opportunities to rotate into and around at various points of the market cycle. Currently, among the countries where we see the best value include Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Russia, India, as well as Indonesia. Given all the talk about reworking and undoing trade agreements, what do you see as the positives and the negatives, and who will be the beneficiaries? To your point, market concerns over the global economy turning more protectionistic. This remains just talk. It is still to be seen if the political rhetoric will materialize into actual economic policy actions, uh, particularly given the loose-loose proposition for all parties involved. All else equal, and while not attempting to be speculative here, we think a certain degree of appeal to rationality will ultimately prevail. Um, and that being said, from a strategic standpoint, countries that have large domestic economies will likely withstand the vagaries of trade policies somewhat better. And among the six countries that I listed earlier, they all share a similar characteristic, and that is they are less vulnerable to a reduction in international trade. What has been the emerging market issuance trend as far as sovereign versus corporate and local versus U.S. currency issuance? And where do you see the most opportunity going forward? Back in the 90s, issuance was dominated by sovereigns and in U.S. dollars. Quite frankly, there were no meaningful onshore fixed income markets to speak of then. As a matter of fact, the resulting build-up in hard currency liabilities did pose external macro risks for some countries. Indeed, inadequate FX reserves and a tendency to rely on short-term bank loans were among other factors that led to the Asian financial crisis in 97 through 98. Now, today, the landscape has undergone a radical transformation. EM issuance is much more balanced as a result of deepening in local bond markets, as well in tandem with financial development and growing wealth a domestic investor base for bonds has emerged. As macro conditions improve, state-owned entities, banks, 
and corporates have all become active issuers. Given the current U.S. uncertainty, we favor sovereigns and currencies that are less sensitive to the U.S. policy environment and the Fed cycle. Arguably, these would include, among others, Brazil, Russia, and India. We also favor select picks in the fast-growing list of the so-called frontier countries. While these are typically much smaller economies, structural changes can be transformational with orthodox policies, and we view the stronger credits as being well-placed to mature over time into mainstream EM names over the next 10 to 15 years. Now, needless to say, our core convictions uh, will be centered on countries that adhere to strict discipline of market economics. This investment thesis is consistent with the Western asset philosophy of value investing across diversified strategies. You mentioned that the emerging markets are not for the tourist investor. In a difficult environment for fixed income investing, some investors may be tempted to reach for yield without thoroughly considering how much risk is being added in exchange for the incremental yield gain. CL, I know you're not a fan of an index-based wholesale approach to investing in the emerging markets or taking on concentrated bets. Can you talk about why and also about why using the closed-end fund structure makes sense? Michael, my objection to an index-based approach to EM investing can be traced to the inherently heterogeneous nature of the asset class, which, as I mentioned earlier, comprises over 70 countries. Factors driving the investment strategy in each of these countries are seldom monolithic in nature. For example, what hurts a country, say in the form of lower energy prices, would actually benefit another, in this case, an importer of commodities. Consequently, it is very hard to make the case for a one-size-fits-all investment strategy in EM. Now, the trouble with passive indexes, though, is that it creates precisely this issue of rising tides lifting all boats, whether deserving or not. Rather perversely, market gains in weak countries can create an illusion of micro-strength and reduce the incentive for reforms. Perhaps more damningly, this wholesale approach to EM investing represents a tacit sponsorship for, by the investor for bad credits. Now, on the contrary, the use of a closed-end fund offers a range of advantages to the EM investor. The asset base is typically more stable, which helps facilitate the fund's management in accordance to the longer-term investment objectives. Additional benefits include trading liquidity as well as pricing transparency and as well the flexibility to employ leverage to enhance returns. I would also add the point of dialogues and interactions with portfolio managers at our regular shareholder meetings. These discussions have been intellectually stimulating for all parties involved. In summary, it is our hope that investors in our close-end emerging markets fund will over time be rewarded in risk-adjusted terms, one that is in lockstep with the rising gravitational force of EM countries over the secular horizon. 
Thank you, CL. We appreciate your insight and for taking the time to be with us today. The pleasure was mine. You can learn more about Western Asset and their closed-end funds on the Lake Mason website at lakemason.com, as well as on cifa.com, which is your comprehensive resource for education, data, and timely insight on closed-end funds. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day.